2.0. I'm Sean McCraney. Tonight's presentation is called The Cornucopia of Concepts for Your Consideration. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we uh, love you and seek you and need you. And uh, we're just talking about different things tonight just to see if it will spark some ideas and interest in our walk. We pray that you'll help us draw closer to you, rely on you more, uh, be men and women of faith and uh, overcome our doubts. We pray that we'll learn to love and uh, we'll bl bless the people who help keep the program going in whatever way they uh, volunteer. And we just pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. On o October, Tuesday, April 24th, we're going to have a very special pre-recorded interview with an influential leader of ex and present LDS folk. Who is this person? One John Delenn. I'm going to be interviewing John. He's done over 900 interviews on Mormon Stories, but he's going to sit here with us and I'm going to get to interview him two to three hour special. Perhaps one of the most important uh, interviews that I've ever done relative to the Mormon Christian issue and people leaving the faith. Tell your friends, Tuesday, two weeks from tonight, April 24th, we will show you that interview with John Delenn. For those of you who support the ministry with uh, finances or through your prayers or sharing the ministry with other people, uh, I want to take a minute and tell you that we have several things in development that are really uh, important. They're, they're really quite big and they're not out there yet, but we've been working on them for a while. Seth has been working on them, Michael's been working on them, I've been working on them. One of them has to do with Mormonism, and it is something that has never been done before, and uh, one has to do with Christianity in a major way, uh, talking about something to do with Christianity that will have an effect if it takes off the right way. Uh, so in addition to the weekly shows and the archive shows and two weekly live streaming, uh, verse by verse, uh, studies and over a thousand archive services, six books, most of them available for you for free, some amazing songs, couple films, and even a full album, a jamming full album by one Steve Utley. We need you, our fans, to help see these projects to fruition. Now listen, I know that everywhere everybody turns to ask for money. That is not the primary thing. We can always use support financially, but uh, I realize that there's a cause around every corner. There's a go f fund me around every corner, and there's everybody is in need of donations. And so our stance has always been this. If you are led of the Lord, if you're in a financial position to give, and if you're not on a limited fixed income, meaning you're elderly, retired, meaning you're gamefully working and you have surplus, and then if the Lord leads you, that, those have always been our qualifiers for people who support us financially, uh, we won't turn it down. We appreciate it. It keeps us going. If you can't assist us with hard-earned cash, which is so tough in this day, so many people are, are scraping just to make ends meet, uh, you can assist, listen, you can assist us in a far more powerful way. And that would be through your prayers. That is more powerful than giving money. Did you know that? And we believe that. So I openly ask you to consider us in your prayers. 
uh, pray for us, pray for me, pray for those in the ministry, and pray that the things that we have on the table, if God wants it, that's what we hope, that where God guides, God provides. So we're hoping God is guiding in these things. If he is, we pray for his support. So uh, our stance has always been, let God guide and he will provide. So we covet the time you will spend in your personal prayers when you think about it by the Spirit to just include Campus Church, Heart of the Matter, Aletheia, Sean, Seth, Mary, Patrick, Joan, Adam, Steve, Mike, Reed, whoever that's involved with the ministry, Derek, Danita, Linda, Kathy, Maggie, who is at home resting, all these people, just ask the Lord to help sustain what we're doing, and He will. And so the onus is off you. You don't have to feel any kind of burden, except if you can remember, just pray for us. We've done it since 1997, and He has sustained us, so I think He still will. Over the years, people have occasionally been interested in how I, why I interpret Scripture the way I do and what tools I use in my hermeneutic to understand the Scripture. And I borrow from a medieval approach to understanding Scripture. And uh, in addition to recognizing who wrote the book, uh, why it was written, where it was written, who it's being written to, and the circumstances surrounding that, I recently looked back in some notes, <coughs> uh, which was sparked by my friend Christopher, to help me understand how I'm actually interpreting. And here are four tools that I personally use, and since people have asked, these are them. First, I apply a literal approach. And what that means is I, I take the interpretation of the events of the story literally. And I say, this is the exact meaning that's one way. Now, it's not the only way, and I might not stick to that way, but that's one way you look at Scripture. Then I look at the typological or typological view, and what that is is if I read a story in the Old Testament, I see it as a type for something in the New. If I read something in the New Testament, I might see it as a type for something later in our lives, you see? Just like Christ taking his cross and bearing it, Paul gives us a type where we too are to take our cross. Now, we're not walking around with literal wood crosses. We're taking our personal thing. So that's a typological approach to Scripture. So when I read the New Testament too, I think, what are the types here? The third way is the tropological approach. Typologi typological and tropological, and which might be seen as, what's the moral of the story? What are we really trying to get at when we read these scriptures? What is it? What's the moral of the story? That's the tropological view. And then finally, I use an anagogical approach, and that deals with future events of the Christian world in terms of past history, future, heaven, hell, final judgment. And I thank Christopher, Father Christopher, for uh, teaching me the uh, anagogical view and, and how that is something that I actually have been incorporating into my teaching. So these methods, of course, they work together. They work opposite. They're just different. Rarely do any one of them just stand alone. 
Typically, Scripture gives us all those views as we read and study it. So let me give you an example. <coughs> Sorry, Seth. In Numbers chapter 21, God sends these fiery, biting, rat, bat, serpents to sting the children of Israel. And it's killing them. So Moses goes, and he, it's in Numbers 21.9 says, And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole. And it came to pass that if the serpent had bitten any man when he beheld the brass serpent, he lived. Okay, so I would teach that passage and the surrounding elements of the story using those four interpretive tools in this way. First, the literal. Did Moses literally make a brass serpent and put it on a literal pole and hold it up literally? I say yes. So we know that it has an actual literal application in the history of the world, materially done, Moses' brass serpent. We also know later they started to worship that thing. And Moses came and broke it. And he said, Nehushtan, which means just a piece of brass. You know, we're so weird. We, we start to give so much meaning to material things. And we have that as another side story to the whole thing. Typologically, this would be, of course, what? A type of Christ. The serpent is raised up on a pole. And anyone who looks up to it would be healed, saved from death. Who else was lifted up from above the earth? And if you look to him, you'll be saved from death. Christ Jesus. So we see a typological, a type, a picture of the Old Testament story uh, pointing to Christ. Then we have the tropological uh, appointment, and that's the moral of the story. And what's the moral of the story? Well, if you're teaching the Old Testament and you read this about Moses and the children of Israel, the moral of the story is... This is all for us to understand. All you have to do is look to Christ. They didn't need to do anything else but look on the brass serpent and they would be saved from death. Many of them didn't because it was too easy. So they didn't have to pay $30 in order to get into a tent, in order to get a glance at it so they could be healed. They didn't have to join a club. They didn't have to wear certain clothing. They didn't have to obey the Sabbath day to look. They just had to look. And that's the uh, tropological uh, view. And then the anagological view is that people who refuse to look, what happened to the children of Israel? Well, what will happen to the people who refuse to look to Christ? They die. That's what happened to the children of Israel. That's what happens to the people who won't look to Christ. Something about them, and there's a debate on what that is, will die. They're not saved from death of some sort. So I trust that when we teach by the Spirit, we use tools like that, then everybody has the right who's hearing these messages to decide what they believe and what they don't. And if it has application to their life or if it doesn't. All right, I'm going to go to the board and talk to you a little bit about something. And uh, quite frankly, tonight, you are all getting a, an apology from me. Yes, heartfelt apology, actually. And a uh, retraction, too. Hmm. I would like someone to apologize to me for turning the heater on in here. But no, that won't happen. 
Public retraction. Seth is cold. Um, I'm repenting, and that word means I'm changing my mind publicly. And I have sup- approached something that I see now very unwisely, and I only realized it the other day when I was studying. And I thank many of you who have contributed to my thinking on this that have kept pestering me, uh, and this change has come around because of you, and that includes my daughters and, uh, and, uh, and Mary and Aaron and uh, Jordan and Oceanside and a few others as I've dialogued with you and uh, Christopher, my friend who I talk with in the morning. So first, I want to point something out. There is a huge difference, which I have not taken into consideration, between what I personally experience when I am reading the scripture and in my subjective mind and how I ought to convey those views, or not my, those views, but how I convey what the Bible says to others. How the Bible speaks to me when I am reading, I sometimes just share that as if it is the way to share it, and it's not true, and I've made a mistake in that way. See, I personally view, personally, so I'm letting you in on my mind when I read the scripture, that our sin nature is beneficial. We could call what I'm talking about, this little thing I'm going to do on the board, the benefit of sin in our lives. Now that statement alone is just, oh, come on, to many people. No, no, what are you talking about? But I believe the sin nature is a benefit to people in their lives. And that's what I was applying to in the term, in the discussion on homosexuality. I was saying that to call it not sin was to remove the benefit of the sin in your life to keep you humble and contrite before God. There was once a group of people called antinomians. And antinomians lived, which means no law in their life, and they, they kind of, some of them believed, listen, Jesus died for the sins of the world. We should sin as much as we can so that his sacrifice is appreciated. That, that was actually what people did with his sacrifice. And of course, the early church fathers and, and the uh, a couple apostles said, no, that is not the way we want to go about this, you see. Um, but however, I think there is something to the idea that sin plays a beneficial role in the human experience, whether a person is a believer or not. So let me explain that to you. What does sin do in the lives of people who don't even know God? Well, there's, there's a book called, oh, what's it called? Return to Modesty by Wendy Shelton. She studied and she did these interviews with girls all over, girls that had no religion, and asked them about when they lost their virginity. And most of them described it not being a good circumstance where they felt there was a loss in their life when that occurred. Now, these aren't religious people. So I think that the presence of sin in an unbeliever's life does something beneficial to cause them to look outside themselves. What happens? Some people in sin have a troubled conscience. 
that's how you spell it. I don't remember. There's people who do feel guilt without being Christians. I feel very guilty because the, the Spirit of Christ is in them from birth, and they feel badly for doing things that are bad without any religious training. Um, they feel shame, they, which is similar. They feel a disconnect to themselves. Now, all of these things take somebody who's an unbeliever and can lead them to some really good results. Um, there's people who have unrest because of guilt and shame. And there are people who are really disappointed. I mean, we have people who have parents and the kids commit crimes and get put in jail and the, and the kids were never raised with religion, but they're very disappointed at what they have done. This is just the law written on our hearts that we have as human beings through conscience. And then there's also people who are embarrassed, etc., etc. Okay, now here's the thing. Can you see that? Okay, here's the thing. There are a couple ways that unbelievers deal with these products of sin in their life. They can say, I accept this. I accept all this in my life. I accept sin. Eventually, I like sin. And that is what they do. They say it's okay. They become hardened. They don't ever, ever really change because they've accepted the sin in them. Now, I don't think sin does a good thing in them uh, at this point. That's when it's lost. Others will choose to fix the sin themselves. They'll do this through self-help programs and, and whatever else. They will fix the error of their ways to get rid of these problems, and they'll do it through positive mental thinking, and they'll do it through seminars and psychology and stuff like that. But there are some where the benefit of sin leads them to God. And so that is how God has victory in this world. He uses the brokenness of people to get them to feel so badly that they turn to God. Okay. Now, the other side is what happens in a believer's life when they sin? Well, if they have the Holy Spirit with them, there is really quickly an immediate um, feeling bad. It just automatically happens. And it causes them to go and say, Lord, forgive me. I'm really sorry for what I've done. There is humility. There is contrition. There is a disconnect from God in our minds. I don't think God ever leaves. I think we pull back when we're in error and we won't admit it. Um, I think there's a lack of peace. And I think there is pleading with God. Oh, forgive me for my, my selfish ways or whatever it might be. And there's a hating of our flesh. And after all those things, and I'm not going to list them here, it's also sin also serves as a great indicator of what we are focused on in our lives. When sin is present in a believer, you automatically know I'm relying more on my flesh than I am on God. And it redirects us, constantly redirecting us back to him. 
Anyone who's a Christian understands these principles, right? Okay, so you have all that understood. Now, this model is something I personally see from Scripture. With all my heart, I use it myself, this side, to keep myself in check. When I start to go a little too far, I realize you're getting too flushy, Sean. Now, other people... That's it. That, I'm going to get to this point, but this is for me. It's something I believe, something I see. So there's that. However, this is where the I was wrong part comes in and I, that I've changed my mind about. Recently, I thought it was important to teach strongly homosexuality is a sin. Okay? And I, and I taught that based off this model. For those who are either believers or unbelievers, it will lead to uh, contrition, which will lead them to humility, which will lead them to God. I took my personal understanding and applied it to the rest of the world. Now, pre preachers and teachers and pastors do this all day long, and that's what I did. I had forgotten something that's key to what we are as Christians. Let me explain. My justification was the public imposition of this model would help our viewers. And I was wrong about this. Here's the thing. Never again, ever, if someone comes up to me and says, is homosexuality a sin? Or is this a sin? Or is that a sin? Is getting high a sin? Is masturbation a sin? All the things everyone wants to know, is it a sin? I am never, ever again going to say anything is a sin. What I am going to say is this thing I forgot, is to respond with, are you justified by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, or are you not? That is the Christian response, I believe, to the question, is this, that, or the other a sin? Are you a Christian, a believer in Christ, justified by faith through grace or not? Sean is being gay a sin. Are you justified by God's grace through faith on his son? Yes or no? If the response is, no, I'm not. Then my follow-up to that is, well, let's talk about that. This is, this is how, this is what I've missed, where I've missed the mark. Let's talk about that. When they come back, well, I want to know about if homosexuality is a sin. Let's talk about why you're not a new creature in Christ, why he hasn't had application in your life, why this hasn't happened. I will not talk to you about whether homosexuality or masturbation or getting high or boinking the cat is a sin. But, okay, it's irrelevant whether it's a sin or not to unbelievers in Christ. It does not matter at all, okay? If they say, yes, I am a born-again Christian, yes, I have been 
reborn in, in Christ Jesus. So now I ask you, is homosexuality a sin? And the answer to that is, that's between you and God and the Holy Spirit to answer. That's not for me to answer. And that way, we meet what the faith is and what we're supposed to do with the faith instead of going around and imposing our views on what is right, what is wrong or not. Because for every yes answer, there's a no answer in this, in this place too. But there's no equivocation on is someone justified in Christ or are they not? And on that, you can then build on your responses to someone who wants to know about these particular things in their life. Let's say they say, well, I'm not asking about myself. I'm asking about another person. They want to know if homosexuality is a sin. And again, my response is, are they saved in the blood of Jesus Christ or not? And if they say, well, yes, they are. They say, well, that's up to them. They will die. They will die with all the knowledge of what they hear from Scripture, what they hear from the pulpit, what they hear from the Spirit, what they have found is acceptable in their life. And they will go before God themselves and I forgot that. And so what I did was I took what the Bible says and I said, this is the law that you have to obey. And I forgot that if Christ has taken care of all sin, past, present, and future, and that we have his laws written upon our minds and hearts today in this age, and a few other factors, which I'm going to mention before we wrap this part up, I realized I made a mistake. It, and, and I won't make that mistake again. I've got it clear in my, my head now. The principle I missed was that it's not our job as Christians to stop sin among unbelievers. Our job as Christians is to share Jesus with unbelievers. I missed that. And so that was a, that was a fatal flaw in my thinking. Um, and even more so, it's not our job to judge the content of another person's life who is a believer. It's up to them by the spirit that's in them to stand before God. So to even have a discussion with a believer as to whether something is a sin or not is ridiculous. To me, it's almost, almost like saying, is it wrong to have a red car? That's between God and you. If God doesn't want you to have a red car, then it is. If he says, drive a red car, it's not. Now, people don't like that because they want to be told what can and can't be. But Paul says something really interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, he first talks about all these heinous things. And then he says, right after he talks about all these heinous things, he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. He repeats it, all things are lawful, right after he gives a laundry list of really heinous activity. He says, all things are lawful again, but I won't be brought captive to anything. That was his answer to all those heinous things. They're all lawful. It's up to you. The Spirit tells you how you're going to live your life, and you know whether you're living right or not. It's not up to me to tell you. But I personally, Paul says, won't be put in, in captivity to anything. So he talks about drunkenness there. He says, all things are lawful, 
but I'm not going to be put under the bondage of anything. You see how, the wor- how that works? One last thing. Think about this. When we come to the Lord, for when I came to the Lord, 1997, I went to him and I was really bad off. And I heard a radio preacher ask a question. If you can fix yourself, why haven't you done it? And it hit me right between the eyes because I had tried, but I hadn't done it. And the preacher gave the answer, Charles Stanley. He said, the reason you haven't done it is because you can't fix yourself. And I was like, what is this? And then he explained that's why Jesus came. So relative to ourselves, point your fingers at yourself. When you think of yourself and your relationship to God, that was firmly established when you admitted you can't fix yourself. You can't do it. And he steps in and says, my son, my daughter, I am here and I will fix you, like Coldplay says, right? The second part to this, when we get disturbed and frustrated and angry with other people, it's because we think we can fix them. We've told God we can't fix ourselves, but when we become frustrated and angry and violent and, or whatever it is, we think we can fix them. That's not our job either. And when you free yourself from trying to fix people and you look at everybody in love, you become free. You become free when you tell God, I can't fix myself. And he steps in and he takes over your life. You become more free when you look at other people and say, I can't fix them. And he says, don't try. You just love them. And that freedom opens up even more, you see. That's where I made my error. As, and, and so I apologize. Patrick. Patrick's, uh, Patrick is cleaning the boards for us tonight. Okay, quick drink of vodka. Water. It's a joke, you guys. I haven't touched a drop of alcohol since they invented the funnel. Okay. There's been some talking about suffering that we talked about last week. And I thought I would make a little bit more clarification because people seem to really resonate to that message on the board. Let me start it out this way. What is not only the price, but the cost of obtaining things in this world that we might desire. What is the price and the cost of acquiring skills, of, of getting fame and popularity, of, of getting material wealth and riches, and uh, notoriety and knowledge and power? Uh, and, what, and then you take what the cost is to get those things, and you ask, then what are their eternal significance when I'm gone? So you look at your life's time and you say, the cost to get this and this and this and this and this and this. And then you say, how applicable are those things to my eternal life afterward? I am personally convinced that what I desire in my flesh here and now, in my flesh, uh, is vapid. Sort of like uh, a handful of peanuts or, or, or uh, trinkets in the Cracker Jack box. I think in the spectrum of eternity, 
the things my flesh wants to acquire and have here that have a cost and price to acquire, um, I think really are trinkets compared to the things we can carry with us into the eternities. In Hebrews chapter 11, which is called the Hall of Fame of Faith, the writer goes through and he points out men and women. One of them's a harlot, by the way. And he raises her up as someone to look to because she had faith. All of these people in Hebrews 11 are people who had faith. And he holds them all up as being have as them living their lives because they had a heavenly future. That's how they live their lives. And all the people referred to are inspiring. But at verse 24, he says this. By faith, Moses, when he was come to maturity, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which, by the way, was his established identity on earth, the son of Pharaoh's daughter, meaning he could have wealth and luxury and riches. It says, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. He says, he esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he had respect unto the recompense of their reward. That's the King James line, very heavy. And what it means, for he had respect for the reward that came with seeking heavenly things rather than earthly things. A clearer way to say it, his choice was, I am choosing this because I have respect for the reward that will come with it, okay? Writer continues at verse 27, By faith, Moses forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, he persisted, as seeing him who is invisible, that means he... He pursued as if seeing the living God who's invisible as he lived his life. Now, in this example of Moses, we have a type, topology, which is fulfilled in Christ. And Moses, yes, he said no carnival uh, peanuts, no Cracker Jack trinkets, no vapor of my life. I am going to focus on other things. Jesus did it a thousand times more, okay? Moses is striking the rock in anger. Moses is complaining. Moses is having some real troubles. He's a man. Jesus comes and he is, he fully says, not this, but that kingdom, right? After having established this in Hebrews chapter 11, the writer of Hebrews goes on to chapter 12 and he says, wherefore, meaning as a result of all these types I've just given you of Moses and everybody else, seeing that you are compassed about with all these examples I've given you, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for who the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. What that says is Jesus said, I don't care about the things I can have here. I am going to despise, I'm going to hate the shame of the cross and embrace the shame of the cross.
by going to it. I am going to go and set with joy. I am going to take that cross and I'm going to take it because he said I'm going to live for that heavenly place, that heavenly destination. So last week we discussed the characteristics of those who will not only have admittance into the city of God, that he has prepared for them, but they'll have admittance into his holy temple. They'll have admittance into his holy of holies because they will be those who chose to suffer with the saints like Jesus and not to live for this world alone. That's the picture, that's the model. The subject of willful suffering is what is being addressed here. First, it's in the life of Moses, then it's in the life of Christ, and now it is presented to us as the life in the life of his followers. And again, we can't prescribe or describe what that suffering looks like in individuals. The individual knows what they are laying aside here. The individual knows. It doesn't mean someone can't have wealth. It doesn't mean someone can't have material. The individual knows where their kingdom is set, where their eyes are set, whether it's here or there. As chapter 12 goes on, the writer, and I'm going to wrap this up now, he talks about what makes some people, sons and daughters, joint heirs with Christ who will live in the temple versus those who will be allowed in the city versus those who will live outside the city gates. And he says, my son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges, you know what that word means? Whips the skin off them, defleshes them, every son whom he receives. Every son whom he receives. That's suffering. If you endure chastening, God deals, deals with you as sons. For what son is he who his father doesn't chasten? And he goes on to say that, if you're not being chastened by God, meaning having difficulty, having your heart rent by him, having challenges put before you, being constantly under those things that were on the board about uh, uh, your hum humility and your contrition, if those things aren't happening to you, what that writer says is you're a bastard, meaning you're not his son, you're not his daughter. You are someone who will live outside the city gates. Now this is heavy medicine. But this is what the scripture teaches about the future of those who are his and those who are not. And like we said, there will be lovers of truth, people who suffer, and people who love. Those are his. That is who are his. The rest of them, I believe, have a place in the kingdom. I just don't think it will be a place as sons and daughter. The point, choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, like Moses, than to enjoy the pleasures of this world for a season. And it is a mighty quick season. Okay. Patrick, you've already erased one more thing. What time, how much time do we have? 20. One more thing on the board. Hopefully I can get through it. In John 8:58, Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, and this is huge in the Christian world, before Abraham was, I am. Many people use this teaching to show that Jesus is God. 
and that is a big one, especially with Trinitarians. I want to talk about this for a minute, and then we'll converse on uh, this more before we get to the phone. All the references to Jesus by the apostle, by the apostle Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, are never God the Son. Rare, I don't think I don't even think ever the Son of God. I could be wrong on that, but always the man Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One, the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. This is the one who was born of a woman, who learned obedience through the things he suffered who was tempted, remembering that God cannot be tempted. God cannot be tempted. Jesus of Nazareth was tempted in all things, who suffered physical pain and death. God cannot die. The man, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm just talking about his earthly man. I'm not talking about what's in him. Now, he was not, the man was not eternal. Stay with me. His flesh was created. Uh, he was made a little bit lower than the angels, is what Hebrew says. And therefore, he had his mind, will, and emotion in the man, Jesus, learning obedience through the things he suffered. That's why he had to overcome things and be tried and tempted with things. The man, Jesus, is what we're talking about. What existed before that allowed Jesus to say, I am above, you are from beneath. I came down from heaven, you came from the dust. What was he talking about? His brown hair and beard and his robe and his Galilean accent? Was he talking about that? I, this me here that you're looking at was before? That's the way most people see him. What was it about him that caused him to ask his father, Give me the glory I had with you before the world was. What was he talking about? Again, was it the brown beard and, and, and robe and, 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 the, and the Jewish makeup of his body that he was talking about? The spirit that was in his body in flesh. That spirit was God. More specifically, and this is important, it was the spirit of God's words that were in him. Now, see, God's words, they're eternal. They are living. They are life. They are fire. They create. He speaks them, and it happens. They, by his words, he created all things. God said, let there be light. There was light. His words have life. His words are alive. His words have personality. His words have everything. But they are God's words, okay? And his words were made flesh in the man, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman, born under the law, who experienced everything that we experience as humans, but had God himself as the father of his spirit, his, his DNA, the life force driving him. Now, I'm convinced that the man, Jesus, born of a woman in Judea, is God-man, and we say that. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. And he began his existence as man at birth and had to overcome all things on behalf of other men and women. I am convinced of those things about Jesus of Nazareth. 
He is a human extension of God himself in human form. And I resist the idea that he was the second God form of a three-part God. He was man with God in him and still had an eternality by being God's word. So to explain the I am verse then. Jesus of Nazareth versus God in Jesus of Nazareth. How does that work? All right. God said these words to Moses after Abraham was. Do you understand that? When he said before Abraham was, I am. God said those to Moses before Abraham was. I mean, excuse me, after Abraham was. Jesus was the promised seed of Abraham. So he was the seed of Abraham. How can he say before Abraham was, I am? He, the man who was speaking to Jews, could not have been before Abraham. Jesus was not, I am the self-existent one. He was begotten by the Holy Spirit through Mary. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth now. Okay, the man. The man Jesus with beard and blood was not before Abraham. That's why the Jews couldn't believe he was saying that in his flesh and blood. But on the other side, God in Jesus, the word of God was before Abraham. The word of God speaking and creating all things, fire, light, love, the word of God was. So Jesus could say before Abraham was, I am. There is no inconsistency. The word of God, again, was before Abraham. The word of God in him was certainly the I am. The word of God in Jesus was the I am. The I am. One God. He was not the son of I am. He wasn't co-eternal with the father I am. He was I am. And that's how Jesus of Nazareth could say before Abraham was I am. And they were what? He was saying he was God. That's what he was. Finally, the spirit within him, the word of God, was before Abraham, was uncreated, was equal with God, was God himself. This was the spirit of God with him that told him all things. And this was what Jesus, the man, was saying, give me the glory I had with you before the earth was. Give me that same glory, what's in me, before the earth was. These are subtle and distinct little things, but they're different than uh, creedal Trinitarianism and what they try to say um, uh, the Trinity is all about. Just some thoughts for seekers to consider as they consider the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, God with us. Let's go to Alice. You're on the air. I am. Alicia. Well, praise God. <laughs> <laughs> you have to turn your computer down, Alicia. Okay. Yes, dear. Yes. Okay. We're down. All right, <laughs> sister. What's up? Oh, I didn't uh, comment on what you're saying. Well, the last thing... The seed of Abraham, you said Jesus came down from the seed of Abraham. Yeah. Um, 
thought he was the seal of David. But where, where did David come from? <laughs> That's a good point. He was he the seed of David. But he also came through Abraham. All the house of Israel came through Abraham. So Abraham, then David. Yes. Good point, Alicia. Thank you. Um, listen, I want to go back to Pastor Paul about um, everything's uh, permissible, but everything's not beneficial. Really? Permissible, but not beneficial. Not beneficial. That was early on when you were talking about Paul and what he was talking about. That things are not beneficial, but... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You remember? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, um... I do remember... I think permissible, but not all men need about gays. Listen, that is the abomination of God. Abomination of God, totally. But then again, if they if they receive Christ, then you're all right. If you receive Christ, you're okay. Amen, sister. <laughs> Love you. Give love to Brent. I miss you guys. Miss you too. Come Love see you. us. Love you too. Bye. Okay. We're going. See you later. Okay. Bye. Bye. We're... See ya. <laughs> Thought we might get another one. Uh, we're going to John in Maryland. John, you're on Heart of the Matter. Sean, what's up, dude? Hey, I'm sweating my brains out. Hey, I, I don't know how much time you allow me to like talk, so I'm, I, I guess just summarize. Is that what you want me to do? What's the protocol? Yeah, summar sum summarize and give a really good meaty point. We can. Talk about it quickly or leave us with something okay. to think about? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll use some humor in it because a lot of times, to me, a good Christian is somebody that can do a point with it. You have a great sense of humor. So what is James White, Jeff Durbin, Dave Bartosowitz, and your uh, guy Jason that came on that one week that couldn't love your friend because he said he didn't know him? What do they have in common? Um, I don't know. Dude, they're so text-driven, man. They forget that people oh. like Paul used to be Saul. You're the only person I know, besides myself and a few others, that is a humble seeker and follower of Christ. Not saying they aren't, but they letter the law so much with their belief system. It's like, you're not going to get to heaven and everybody's and Heavenly Father's going to go, okay, I want all the Mormons over here and the Calvinists. Okay, you guys go over on row three. And yeah. It's like, oh, my God, man, and these are good men. These are smart men. I just I don't see why they can't see what you're talking about. You know what I love? frustrating. I love about your comment is uh, when you say they're text-driven because weren't the Pharisees the same? Yeah, and what's, isn't, you're, you're pretty good with the Scriptures now. You've gotten better just since I've watched your show. Doesn't James <laughs> chapter 4, verse 11 say, you speak evil of, evil of your brother, then you're following the law, and if, if you're following the law and you're being that letter-driven, then you're not a doer. You're a judge. Yeah. I just so read I don't that. understand, man. I don't understand these guys, man. Well, you know, I made, a, I made an error in going down that same route, which I tried to correct tonight, John. It's easy to do, but they really right. think their interpretation is right and everyone needs to adhere. I, I don't understand why they have done that either, but I can... Well, and, you know, I told you I'm still a Latter-day Saint, but I told you I'm a born-again Latter-day Saint. I'll accept even it. Even though I haven't left the church... Dude, I, I do believe a lot of the stuff you talk about, like, dude, I'm filthy rags. It's only by grace that I'm saved through faith. Amen. Amen. I mean, but just because I'm a Latter-day Saint doesn't mean I'm not going to be saved. 
we don't know who's going to be saved. You know what I mean? So when people stand around and they talk about seven points of this or three points of that, I just want you to know I'm real proud of you, dude, and I believe a lot of what you believe in, man. You keep up the good work, brother. Thanks, Brother John. Thanks for you calling. take care. God bless you. Have a good week, brother. You too. Bye-bye. All right, bro. Bye-bye. You know, an interesting point came up the other night. Uh, Mary and I were having dinner with a couple, and the couple were, were like, um, really frustrated having been LDS that uh, they discovered Jesus' atonement. His blood wasn't enough for every sin. There were some sins that, going back in church history, the LDS would say, you know, are not covered. Murder is one, and, and uh, pot- potentially adultery. It just depends on who you're talking to. And as we talked, uh, we, we kind of came to the conclusion, but you know what? You know what? Five-point Calvinists say Jesus didn't die for the sins of the world. So five-point Calvinists say his blood really does, wasn't applicable to a lot of people either. And, and it's really quite fascinating. There's other people who say his blood isn't uh, efficacious unless, uh, you know, you receive what he has and you humble yourself and you do this and then it's applicable. That's an Arminius view. Instead of him coming and doing for the world, for everybody, irrespective of their response, him coming and doing for us what we could not do. So it's really funny when you start, that's why I'm thinking about John, he's still a Latter-day Saint, but he could walk into a Reformed church and he's gonna hear Jesus didn't pay for the sins of most people. What's the big difference between that and, and, and Mormonism that says murderers can't be forgiven by the blood of Jesus either? So there's so much out there like he, he's bringing up. I, I'm not ecumenical. There is Jesus and that's it. Forget the religions. But uh, I, think, I think you made a good point. I hope we got through this cornucopia. John DeLynn, 24th interview, two, three hours. He knows his stuff. He's a PhD. He's worked his butt off to get it. He's interviewed 900 people coming out or who are currently in Mormonism. And John has a very, I'll just say this, a very humanist approach to things. And I want to share during the interview with John the good news, what the good news really is. And there's no reason why all those people he's interviewed shouldn't receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. There's no reason at all they would resist him at all with the good news being what it is. We'll see you next week here on Heart of the Matter.